Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. Today, we're going to be talking about how you invest different buckets or different segments of your retirement portfolio. And I think this topic will make a little bit more sense after I read the question that we're going to be going through. But the gist of it is understanding maybe different bucket approaches or understanding where you're going to be pulling from first in retirement. How does that inform your investment decision processes or how does that inform the asset allocation or asset mix process when you're looking at one portion of your portfolio from another? So this question is, or this episode is response to a question. And this question is from Eric. And Eric says this, he says, what is an appropriate drawdown rate from a taxable account during your bridge years before retirement? So between age 50 and 59 and a half, I know that in retirement it's 4%. And once I hit 60 years old, I can draw almost 75,000 a year as a 4% clip from my retirement accounts. But in order to let those accounts do the growing they need to, I need my brokerage account to last me 10 years if I want to retire at 50. If I have roughly 650000 in my Schwab account, can I safely draw down 65000 per year for 10 years? If that's not feasible, how much savings emphasis should I be putting on growing my taxable account if I'm 36 years old now and would like to retire in 14 years? As a side note, age 50 is not a hard stop. It's more so a goal as I don't love my job and I'd love to have more time to devote to running, biking, cooking, church, and just lounging at the pool with a good book or listening to a podcast. All right. Well, that is the question. And essentially what he is asking is he's got, as he sees it, two buckets, his retirement accounts, which are probably things like 401ks and IRAs and Roth IRAs that he knows he can't touch until age 59 and a half. And then he has his brokerage account. So when he referenced his Schwab account, really he's referencing that brokerage account, the portion of his account that's not in a retirement account, but it's freely accessible at any age. And if he knows he wants to use that brokerage account to be the the bridge between his retirement at age 50 and his access to his retirement accounts at age 59 and a half, how should he invest that? So it's a very good question, and that's what we're going to explore on today's episode. Real quick before we do, want to highlight the review of the week. This review is from username WMK1956. Leaves a five-star review saying, great podcast. Been listening for a while now. Impressed with the subject matter and the clarity of the podcast. Well worth the time to listen. Thank you very much. I always appreciate those reviews. If you have not done so, I would appreciate you clicking or tapping that five-star button. If you want to leave some text as well, always appreciate doing so. More and more people are listening to this episode or this podcast every single month, and it's exciting to see. And one way that people find out about it is through reviews. And the other is as you share this podcast with friends and family that you think could benefit from it. So appreciate all of you that do that. So let's get back to Eric's question. Eric's question is really, what is the right asset allocation? for these, this bridge account, and how much could I safely think about pulling out of that bridge account? So when we back way up, what is asset allocation? When, and why do we go through the process of creating an asset allocation, which is just the sense of, or which is just the understanding of how much are you going to invest in different types of asset classes? So different types of stocks, different types of bonds, different types of investments like that. Well, what you're doing there is you're not just choosing some investments that you like and deciding to put your money there. What you should be doing is aligning your portfolio assets today 
with the future liabilities that your portfolio is going to have. What do I mean by a future liability? What I mean by that is your portfolio is designed to sustain some future level of income. And those future incomes are going to be derived by what your expenses are in future years. So what you're trying to do today is trying to get a sense of what's needed in the future and then think of those as liabilities or think of those as demands from your portfolio and what asset classes today should I invest in to best support my ability to generate that level of income in the future to support that investment liability or that expense that I might have at that time. So that's a general sense of what you're doing or what you're trying to do with asset allocation. Now, let's look at a hypothetical example. Let's assume you're going to retire next year. And let's also assume that you've determined you need $50,000 per year from your portfolio to sustain that retirement. Well, you're probably going to look at your portfolio. You're probably going to say, I should have some money in cash or conservative investments to be able to fund those living expenses, even in a downturn. You'll probably look at other parts of your portfolio and say, not only will I need $50,000 per year today, but I'll still need $50,000 per year in 20 years. And not just 50000 per year, but I would need to maintain that purchasing power over that time. And if inflation is going to double or more the cost of living, I'll really need some assets that can generate 100000 per year, maybe in 20 years or so. So what you're doing is you're giving yourself options of if markets are down or if markets are up, you're always going to have somewhere that you can pull assets from or pull income from from your portfolio in order to meet those living expense needs. And here's the thing with that, too, is even if you're going to retire tomorrow, you still might have a 30 plus year investment time horizon. Some people think of retirement is the end of that horizon. Day one of retirement is the beginning of that horizon. Sure, you'll have some needs the first year, the second year, the third year, but you may have income needs for 20, 30, 40 plus years, depending on when you retire. So that's why even with retirement planning, you want to own a broad mix of assets because you don't know exactly what the market's going to do. You don't know if it's going to be up or down or any which way in any specific year. But if you spread your assets out, if you have some assets that are very consistent in terms of the returns they generate over a one-year time horizon, and you have others that are very consistent in terms of the returns they generate over, say, a 20-plus year time horizon, allocate those the right way, have the appropriate strategy, and you can step into retirement knowing that you have options for where to draw from. Well, back to Eric's question, when you have a very specific and defined time horizon, it makes that a little bit harder. So what he's saying is if I retire at 50, how much money do I need to have in my brokerage account to last me until exactly age 59 and a half? That's a little bit more difficult because what we don't know is we don't know exactly how the market's going to perform over that nine and a half year time period. And if you have a great nine and a half year time in the market, or if you have a horrible nine and a half year time horizon in the market, it's going to lead to a very different outcome. It's going to lead to you needing a very different starting amount of money at the beginning of that time period for you to be able to support yourself until age 59 and a half. And this makes sense. You know, we see this all the time. I'll run a retirement projection for someone. And a comment I'll get a lot is we'll say, do you have any legacy goals? And a lot of people say, yes, absolutely. I want to pass money down. Other people say, no, James, I want to make sure I bounce my last check. In other words, how can I squeeze as much juice out of my retirement assets as I possibly can so I can fully live and not have to worry about leaving any money behind when I go? Well, the hard part about that is if you assume some fixed rate of return, say you assume a growth rate of 6% on your portfolio, you can take a look at that and you can manipulate the software to determine exactly how much money you should spend if your portfolio grows by exactly 6%, to run out of money exactly on a specific date. 
The problem with that is if you run something called a Monte Carlo analysis, which says, sure, your average return might be 6%, but depending on what the market does, we, we don't know what market returns are going to be or what inflation is going to be or what life expectancy is going to be. Your average or your median case is maybe you bounce your last paycheck, but you're probably either going to die with $20 million in your portfolio if you have really amazing market returns, or you might run out of money five years too soon. And you look at that and say, well, what use is that? That is so stinking broad. It doesn't give you any specifics about exactly how much money you're going to have when you pass away. And that's just life. We don't know exactly what the market is going to do. We don't know exactly what inflation is going to do. We don't know exactly how long you're going to live. So as you look at that, if you can't control those variables exactly or precisely, we just don't know exactly what is the starting amount to support an exact level of income to generate the exact desired result. It's kind of like this, you know, when people run a one-time projection for their retirement goals, that's good. And then it's going to give you some clarity and it's going to give you a starting point, but it's kind of like going on a whitewater rafting trip and going to a guide and saying, Hey, can you help us navigate this Colorado river? We're about to whitewater raft down. And the guide says, sure, you know, here's a current snapshot of where the currents are and what the tides are doing and, and, and what the rapids are doing. Just go here and take these turns and navigate it this way and, and you'll be just fine. And you look at the guide and say, are you kidding me? That, why are we looking at a snapshot in time? That's what things look like today or at this particular moment. But things happen so quickly and the conditions change so quickly that to be able to navigate that, there's no way to tell exactly how long it's going to take to get to the end of the river or exactly what the tides, the currents are going to be doing at particular moments or exactly how your life raft will react to different things along the way. So as we try to predict this with any certainty, this is a long-winded way of if I come back to Eric's question of is $650,000 enough to do this? There's not a yes or a no answer. The answer, as with everything, unfortunately, is it depends. Let's look at an example of that. So Eric wants to generate $65,000 per year from his brokerage account from age 50 to 59 and a half, at which point his investment withdrawals will kick in. Well, for the sake of simplicity, let's just back out inflation for a second. Let's assume it's 65,000 at age 50, 65,000 at age 51, 65,000 at age 52, so on and so forth. And he wants to know how much money do I need to have in my brokerage account to be able to do so? Well, if we knew exactly what the stock market or your investment portfolio returns were going to be, we could calculate that number precisely. If we knew it was going to be exactly 10% per year that you were going to get in terms of investment growth, you would only need $400,000 to be able to generate $65,000 per year for 10 years. And then at the end of that 10 years, your money is at zero. So that 400,000 would have been spent down to zero if you get a 10% growth rate, but you would have been generating $65,000 per year of consistent income. Compare that to a 0% growth rate. This one's pretty easy. All you have to do is multiply 65,000 times 10 and you get 650,000. So yes, if you have 650,000 and it does not grow at all, and if you don't need any inflation adjustments, then 650,000 growing at 0%, so AKA just sitting in cash, that would generate that $65,000 per year. Now, what if you don't get 0%, but what if you get a negative 3% per year growth rate? Well, you would need $770,000 starting at age 50 to be able to generate $65,000 per year over that 10-year time period. So as you can see here, if you have a good, strong, positive return, it can be as little as $400,000 that's needed. If you have a poor negative return over that time period, 
$770,000 is what might be needed. And you may be listening to this and saying, well, that's kind of a ridiculous example. Why would you assume a negative 3% per year growth rate over that 10-year time period? Well, for the same reason I showed a 10% per year growth rate over that time period. I pulled it from actual real-world returns. So the S&P 500 index, for example, the index that measures the, the largest 505 companies in the U.S. subject to certain criteria, its average lifetime return is right about 10% per year. But it's never once returned exactly 10% in any given year. If we look at time periods, and this is just going back the last 50 years, if you want to understand the best and worst possible returns, that helps to set some perspective as to what you might be able to expect as an investor. So over the last 50 years, the S&P 500 has had a year where it returned as much as 61% over a 12-month time period. That was starting in July of 1982. The one year following that, it was up 61%. The worst 12-month returns ever had is down over 43%, starting in March of 2008. So what you can see is in any given year, your range of outcomes, it could be as high as 61% or it could be as low as negative 43%. That is a really, really significant margin of difference there. Now, if you do three years, well, over three years, your highest annual annualized return was about 33.4%. So pretty significant. A 33.4% return on average for three years in a row was the best the worst three-year returns ever had on an annualized basis is negative 16%. So not negative 16% cumulative, but negative 16% year after year after year on average. So what you can see is still a very wide margin of potential returns, but they start to condense a little bit. The high is not quite as high, the low is not quite as low. Now at 10 years, the highest 10-year return annualized was about 19.5%. The worst 10-year experience was negative 3.4% over the last 50 years or so. That was starting in March of 1999. 10 years later, the annualized return on the S&P 500 was negative 3.4%. So when I go back to Eric's example of saying, how much do you need to generate $65,000 per year? It depends on this. It depends on what market are you retiring into. Now, granted, this is, all, this is assuming it's all in the S&P 500, which is probably not the best thing to do. But a negative 3% per year growth rate over 10 years, it's not a hypothetical example. That is the worst return the S&P 500's had over the last 50 years. So you can see how someone retiring at that time would need a significant more amount of money invested in the S&P 500 to generate that income for 10 years than someone who got average returns over the course of that 10-year time period. Now, just a quick side note, these numbers are based upon the assumption that you put all of your money in the S&P 500 index, which again is probably not the best investment strategy for anyone. What if you took a different approach and you diversified more? And again, this is just looking over data over the last 50 years. So this is not in any way saying that these numbers will be the exact same going forward. But over the last 50 years, if you took 60% of your portfolio and put it in stocks, 40% in bonds, and you had a balanced approach. So big companies, small company stocks, international emerging markets, real estate, different types of bonds, et cetera. We'll look at that over the 10-year time period. You're not going to have quite as high of an average return over time, but compared to the S&P 500 over 10 years that had over a 10-year rolling time period as high as a 19.5% annualized return for 10 years in a row and as low as a negative 3.43% annualized return over 10 years. The more balanced portfolio, the best 10-year run it had over this time period was just a tad under 19% per year. So still a very, very strong, significantly strong return over that time period. 
And its worst return, worst annualized return over 10 years, was a tad bit over 4%. So that's why diversification matters, is it helps to narrow the range of those potential outcomes, where sure, your absolute best case scenario might not be as bad, but what you're doing is you're protecting against that worst case scenario, because it's those worst case scenarios that tend to derail our plans and derail what we're looking to do as investors. But whether you are on the S&P 500, whether you're in a balanced portfolio, it still is going to come down to what your portfolio performance is going to be. And this is a relatively short period of time. So my guidance as I'm looking at something like this is to focus less on what the specific number should be and to focus more on asking yourself the question, how do I maintain flexibility and give myself options? What do I mean by that? Well, number one, the first thing Eric said is he said 50 isn't a hard stop. It sounds like he's willing to continue working if needed. So ask yourself this, are you willing to go back to work if there's a really poor performance in the market or really poor performance in your portfolio? If the answer is yes, you might ask yourself, is it better to work till 51 instead of 50? Or is it better to retire at 50 and say, go back for a year at 55 or 56 if needed? Well, a lot of people probably say, well, I have the momentum at 50, maybe just go another year or so. Trying to build up a little bit of a cushion or build up more of a buffer, that gives you the freedom from needing it. It kind of gives you the ability to not have to depend upon average market returns or any market returns to make this happen. One more year doesn't sound like a lot, but it's one more year of contributions to your portfolio. It's one more year of compound growth happening. It's one fewer year that you're taking expenses from that. So one extra year actually has a pretty significant outsized impact on your portfolio as a whole, but you always have to balance that. You can keep telling yourself one more year, one more year, one more year, and you can do that forever and you'll never feel totally comfortable if that's the mindset or the approach you're taking. So balance that one more year with reality of is it worth it to have more money if it means doing something that you don't necessarily want to be doing. So there is that fine line there. Number two, what else can you do to maintain that flexibility or give yourself options? Give yourself a little bit of a buffer. You know, in Eric's example, do you have more than that $650,000 in your portfolio or that brokerage portion of your portfolio, which to an extent ties into what we talked about in step one of maybe 50 isn't a hard stop. Maybe you keep working and keep saving but it doesn't necessarily have to be that case. Maybe as Eric's looking at this, does he do less to retirement assets and more to brokerage assets? What this does is it gives him more flexibility on the front end, knowing that if he doesn't need that full $650,000 balance to plug in for those first 10 years of retirement, those carry over. It's not like that just disappears at age 59 and a half and he can no longer use it, but does this change maybe the approach to where money is being saved? So maybe a tad bit less towards retirement accounts, maybe a tad bit more to brokerage accounts. This is not a specific recommendation. I do not know Eric or his specific situation, but that's at least a consideration that I might have. And then just lastly, are you willing to cut back if needed? So there's so much financial planning that's outside of our control, primarily what our stock market or just investment returns going to be and what is inflation going to do? So could you cut back on expenses if needed? Maybe the market is down quite substantially. Is that 65000 per year that Eric needs because that is this bare bone minimum amount needed to maintain lifestyle? That's the case. There's really not a whole lot of flexibility there. He's going to need that $65,000 to pay the bills and live comfortably. Or is that 65000 allowing for some excess, allowing for some travel, allowing for discretionary expenses? If that's the case, then ask yourself the question, 
would I be willing to cut back in specific years or in certain years if market returns warranted it? If the answer is yes, great. That is adding flexibility to your plan. It's giving you options. If the answer is no, you probably have to go back to option one or two, which is maybe working a little bit longer or maybe reallocating where you are saving new dollars to to give yourself more of a buffer up front. So that's the way I would look at this. I wish so badly that as these questions come in, there's just a simple answer. There's a simple math problem answer to these, but there's not. And it's because we're dealing with unknowns. We're dealing with variables. We're dealing with things that are outside of our control that are constantly changing. And so because of that, it's better to understand historical probabilities. It's better to understand what our options are. And it's better to understand or it's better to put ourselves in a position where we have options as opposed to being pigeonholed into one particular scenario that's dependent upon forces outside of our control doing things that, again, we just cannot control. So Eric, really appreciate the question. If anyone else has questions, you can always submit those through the Ready for Retirement webpage. There is a tab there called Submit Your Question. The Ready for Retirement webpage can be found at readyforretirement.co. Please share this episode with a friend or family member if you think someone could benefit from it. Please be sure to leave a review if you've not already done so, and I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.